Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, you guys came to a, a study tonight called The Times They Are Changing. Um, I originally called it woke Christianity, but I think I, I changed it to progressive Christianity. I'll, I'll kind of explain that. So the subtitle is Progressive Christianity, Cancel Culture, and the Coming Persecution. And so you may say, well, what caused me to address this topic with us as a church for such a time as this? Um, It's no surprise to you and me that things are changing very, very quickly. We're seeing culture change like in real time. Not, not slow incremental change, but like, boom, you turn around and it's like, whoa, where are we as a nation? Okay, so the nation is changing rapidly. Sadly, the church is following along with the culture. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about is addressed to the church the evangelical church. Um, So there's been several key issues probably over the past four or five years that have led me to think about addressing this. Um, You may remember probably five or six years ago, um, I preached a sermon called The Gospel and the Same-Sex Controversy. And that was right when the Obergefell and Hodges Supreme Court case came across that made gay marriage legal in all 50 states. That was a major shift in our nation that was made systemically through, through legal channels through the Supreme Court. But what I want to address tonight are some things that have happened in the evangelical, broadly evangelical, church world. Okay, so you may not know some of these names, so I'm going to be, I'm going to name drop tonight, okay? I don't normally name drop because I don't like to cast aspersion on people, but I think at times like this, you probably need to know some names, okay, of, of, of who are the key players and what's going on, okay? So I think there's about four issues that have all kind of come together over the past three or four or five years that have led me to kind of take us on this journey as a church family to, to see what we're facing as Bible-believing churches. So issue number one is a woman named Jen Hatmaker. Does anybody know who Jen Hatmaker is? Anybody heard of her? A few of you heard of Jen Hatmaker. Okay. Now, about four or five years ago, she was a popular Christian speaker, Christian writer, Lifeway Christian Resources, which is our Southern Baptist publishing arm, published a lot of her books. She had a lot of women's Bible studies. She was kind of like quasi-Beth Moore. She was very, very popular among evangelical Christians. Well, in the fall of 2016... Four, almost a little bit over four years ago, um, she basically came out and said that uh, she is in favor of gay marriage, that her view was wrong, and that the Holy Spirit led her on this trajectory to understand that all these years, that's the terminology she used, some of you are, are laughing at that, that the Holy Spirit led her on a journey to understand that, sh- that basically a gay marriage can be holy before God 
and that she feels like the church has been too stifling and too legalistic and that we need to really be affirming of, of the LGBTQ movement. Now, obviously, Lifeway pulled all of her books, and she lost a huge market share among Christian ministry. Um, and so she's still pushing that agenda today. So she would be somebody that we would call a progressive Christian. Now, the word I'm using is progressive. That's the kind of the terminology they're using now. Okay. Back in the 1920s and 30s, they were called liberal Christians. As a matter of fact, there's a really good book that came out in, like I think it's around 1932. It's by a guy named J. Gresham Machen. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. And you read that, it was written in the 1930s, and it addresses a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today. Then, kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s, this is when I was a youth pastor. This was really big. It was called the Emergent Church Movement. I don't know if some of you remember the, the word Emergent Church Movement or the Emerging Church Movement. Well, over the past probably five, six, seven, eight years, the term now has become progressive. They're called progressive Christians. That's kind of the way they, they label themselves. I guess it's better than being called a liberal Christian. Um, I guess progressive sounds like we're progressing further than where we were before. Um, so that's issue number one. Jen Hatmaker and just kind of an evangelical Christian leader that was heavy into women's ministry, changing her view on what the Bible says about, about marriage. Okay? And a lot of people have followed her suit. Okay. Number two, Andy Stanley. Now, we have to be very careful with Andy Stanley. He has one of the largest churches in America, in Georgia. He's a megachurch pastor. Um, for the most part, he's not gone off the deep end yet, but he's incrementally moving and making some statements that are very interesting. Um, also back in 2016, um, he was at a conference and was asked a question, why are young people leaving the church? How can we reach young people? Because studies are showing that once somebody graduates from youth group, they somehow tend to graduate from church. And that 18 to 40-year-old demographic is leaving the church in droves, a lot of statistics. And so his answer was, quote, we need to take the spotlight off the Bible and put it back on the resurrection. Now that's a confusing statement. Because how do you know about the resurrection unless you read the Bible? Okay, so that next Sunday, he preached a sermon, and he says this. I'll quote from his sermon. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is where our trouble begins. If the Bible isn't true, Christianity comes tumbling down. Consequently, Christians have felt compelled to defend the Bible because the only way to defend the Christian faith is to defend the Bible. It's next to impossible to defend the entire Bible. No, his dad does not believe that. Charles Stanley. Yeah, yeah. Charles Stanley does not believe what his son, Andy Stanley. So, Andy Stanley has a good heart motivation to reach the younger generation. But the way he's going about it is, we kind of need to move away from what the Bible says, and let's just focus on the event of what Jesus did, and let that interpret Christianity. Well, if you start taking the spotlight off the Bible, that's a slippery slope, because then where do you go? Okay, so that's a megachurch pastor that's influencing a lot of people. 
he's also been very instrumental in, I don't know if this is kind of going off the subject. This is, I hope I don't get too political tonight. So Facebook people, hopefully I don't get muted. There is a, um, there's a division in our country right now among evangelicals in relation to lockdown and how churches should operate. There's people like me that led the charge back in March 30, May 31st and said, we're opening up no matter what. And I told all the leaders in our town, I didn't ask permission, I told all the leaders in town, we're opening up, it's just a courtesy, let you know, here's what we're doing. Deacons and elders, we met, and we had a theological reason as to why we decided to open, because we believe God tells us to meet, not the government. We believe that we have, here's the thing, at least this is what I believe. I believe we have inherent rights that God has given us. The government doesn't give us those rights. The government's there to protect those rights. And so we, we have a higher calling to God. Now, some of these megachurch pastors, and I understand, they're really fighting opening up their churches back. And so some of them haven't even opened up. They're waiting until, you know, who knows when. Now, if you've got 20,000 people at your church, I, I can understand. Opening up would be You'd be accused of having a super spreader event. So I understand the megachurch pastors not wanting to open up. But there are megachurch pastors like John MacArthur in California that are opening up and saying kind of the same philosophy and theology that we have is this is what God's called us to do, and, and that's what we're doing. And so anyway, Andy Stanley, if anything, is confusing. Big Christian, pastor, evangelical, megachurch, this made some confusing statements. Okay, so he's not in the progressive camp yet. I put him in the confusing camp, okay? (laughs) All right, number three. He's been that way for a long time, okay. Number three, the Revoice Conference. Now, this may be something you've never heard of, the Revoice Conference, especially since we're not Presbyterian. Um, If we were in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, uh, which is the denomination of what R.C. Sproul was in before he passed away, Ligon Duncan, Tim Keller, those are probably some big names, um, Kevin D. Young, But back in 2018, at Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, they hosted the Revoice Conference, okay? So here's the the mission of the Revoice Conference, okay? To support and encourage gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that all the church might be empowered to live in gospel unity while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Okay, here's the issue. Here's where Revoice gets very slippery. Revoice, the pastor of that church is named Greg Johnson. Greg Johnson identifies as a gay Christian, the pastor. Now, let me give you a caveat. This is why it's confusing. He still believes the Bible teaches that you shouldn't act out on that and and engage in homosexual behavior. So he's celibate. Does everybody know what celibate means? He's decided not to get, he's decided not to be in a relationship with another man. He's decided to suppress that um, urge and to live a celibate lifestyle. But the problem with the Revoice Conference is the language they use. They've opened up the language to say, we are gay Christians. Now, there are Christians that struggle with same-sex attraction. But the Bible is very clear that the desire is just as sinful as the action. How many of you would have a problem if I said, you know, um, I consider myself an adulterous pastor. I haven't really committed adultery on dawn, but, you know, I've, I've had lustful thoughts about other women. 
so I'm an adulterous pastor. How would you guys respond to me? Label, right? Okay, label. Okay, so what's the difference between saying I'm a gay pastor? So you're identifying yourself based upon a sin, and so that language has crept in. And so basically what they're doing is they're saying, okay, it starts out here. It starts out with, it's okay to have same-sex attraction if you don't act out on it. It's okay to have the attraction, just don't act out on it. To number two, okay, I'm going to call myself a gay Christian, and that's my identity even if I don't act out on it. What's the slippery slope that leads to the next step? It's okay to be a gay Christian and act out on it and then affirm the LGBTQ movement. Are we still live streaming? I just want to make sure we haven't been cut off yet. <laughs> okay, somebody can track us, track me on Facebook. So, so the revoice, it's splitting apart the press. The, the closest denomination to Southern Baptists um, are the Presbyterian Church in America. We're pretty tied together as far as our theology. It's splitting apart the Presbyterian Church right now. There's a conservative wing of the Presbyterian Church that's trying to fight it, and there's a more young progressive wing that's trying to move in that direction of accepting the language of, of I can be a gay Christian, I can be a gay pastor, as opposed to I'm a pastor who's chosen to remain celibate and I struggle with same-sex attraction versus I'm a gay pastor. You understand how language is important when you start using the language? So you got Jen Hatmaker, an evangelical Christian women ministry leader that went all the way to affirming gay marriage. You got Andy Stanley, a megachurch pastor who's become confusing in his statements. And then you have a major denomination that's conservative like we are that's struggling with this whole gay Christian movement with the Revoice Conference. Okay, the fourth issue is within our own tribe, the Southern Baptists. And that is resolution number nine. Resolution, not the Beatles Revolution number nine, but resolution number nine. 2019. In 2019, this was the last time we met. We weren't able to meet this past summer because of COVID, so this is unresolved. This passed late in the evening with hardly any discussion in 2019. And it's about critical race theory and intersectionality. Now, I'm not going to read the whole resolution, but one of the things says is that critical race theory and intersectionality should only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to Scripture, not as transcendent ideological frameworks. Now, the good thing about Resolution 9 is that it, it affirms that the Bible is our authority. But what it's done is it's smuggled into our, and our denomination is fighting over this right now. I will be very honest with you. Whatever happens in June of this year could determine the future of our denomination over critical race theory and intersectionality. Now, some of you, I'm gonna, we're not going to get so much into critical race theory tonight, but let's just say this. Critical race theory comes from critical theory, which comes from Marxism. It's a Marxist ideology born out of the Frankfurt School in Germany that came to America at Columbia University in New York and has infiltrated almost all of the college campuses across the country are involved in critical race theory and intersectionality and social justice issues. Okay? So that's going on in our own denomination. Now, this happened back in June of 2019. Now, just back in December, 
Like just last month, all six of our seminary presidents came out with a statement, and they basically said, this is, this is what they said a year and a half later, in light of current conversations in the Southern Baptist Convention, we stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnation of racism, that's very good, in any form, and we also declare that affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. Now, the Baptist faith and message is, our, is the doctrinal statement of Southern Baptists. And so they've come out and said, racism is bad. Well, we all agree with that. Racism is bad. But they said, we feel like if you affirm critical race theory, it's incompatible with what we believe is Southern Baptist. Now, this has caused a major stir. The National Association of African American, or the National African American Fellowship of Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist Pastors came out against this and said this was offensive to them. So it's caused some issues with our African American brothers and sisters. Um, another group of predominantly white pastors came out with a statement called Justice, Repentance, and the SBC, and, and they're kind of pushing back against what the seminary president said. So, race, the whole issue of critical race theory, critical theory, Marxist ideology, the younger generation in our denomination are kind of moving in that direction. Okay. So, in the past four years, okay, so go back to 2016. Four, there could, you could probably count a whole bunch more, but four watershed issues have led me to help us as a church to kind of navigate these difficult waters. And has, any of, has anything that I've mentioned happened outside in the secular world? Where's it all happened? Within evangelicalism, within denominations, within megachurch, within people that say they're Bible-believing Christians. Not what we would consider secular humanists, atheists. It's all within the church. And so it, it brings some very fundamental questions. And I wish there were more younger people here tonight, but I'm glad that you're here. So here's the question. And, and maybe parents and grandparents, you can instill these into your, to your children. What do we truly believe about the Bible? What do we believe the Bible says about sexual ethics, gender, marriage? What do we believe about the Bible when it comes to issues of justice and race? And the big question I have is why are so many younger people leaving Bible-believing churches? I could show you statistic after statistic after study after study that younger people are leaving Bible-believing churches for various reasons, but a lot of it is because They've been discipled by the culture. Let me just say it this way. You are being discipled whether you know it or not. Now, what do I mean by discipled? You're being shaped. Your worldview is being shaped. Your values are being shaped. Your thought processes, your values, your morals, the way you think about the world is being shaped by something. It's either by God's word and God's truth or it's by the culture. And what's happening is the culture's winning at discipling the younger generation. And so what the younger generation is hearing is, wow, what, what you as my parents believe, that's old-fashioned, that's bigoted, 
that's not very loving. As a matter of fact, it's hateful. It's racist. It's homophobic. It's bigoted. It's narrow-minded. I don't want any part of that. So where do they go? Well, they can leave the church altogether and become atheists. Or they can say, you know what, I, I want to hold on to my Christianity, but I want to find a place that's accepting. So then they'll move into progressive Christianity because they can still hold on to the Bible and some things about Jesus, but they found a home that affirms what they, what they believe. Okay, so with that being said, it's a long introduction, okay, but I wanted to kind of set the stage to show you we live in a time period where there's a lot of things that are happening. Yes, way out in the big bad world, which is, and we'll talk about that later on as it comes, the coming persecution, but I want to show you that it starts, it's starting in, in God's people right now. And if it, if it starts in God's people, we got to be wor- worried about that before it comes from outside, because sometimes it's harder to see when it's from within. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy. Yeah, we are going to get into the Bible, I promise. This was just a long introduction. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to the young pastor, Timothy. He's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He was a young pastor. We probably thought he he may have been a little timid. He may have been afraid to preach the truth with boldness. Um, Sometimes it's hard to preach the truth with boldness, um, especially when what you're preaching is not popular. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Everybody there? Okay, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, what are you charging Timothy to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. All right, let's, let's think about some observations on this, this passage of Scripture. Basically, Paul says, this is a very important thing for you to do, Timothy, because Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And so the important thing for you, Jesus, or you, you, Jesus, the important thing for you, Timothy, is to preach the word. Okay, so there is an importance of faithful, expository preaching. Week by week, faithful preaching. Now, there in verse 2, when, when Paul says preach, it's, it's a Greek word that means to preach with authority, to preach with boldness, to, to stand up on a Sunday morning as a pastor and not be afraid to open this book and say what it says, to not shy away from preaching the truth. And notice what Paul says Timothy's to preach. What's he to preach? Preach what? Your personal opinion? Preach trite little stories about yourself? Give a good political speech? Give a motivational talk? Have a casual conversation? What does he say? Preach the word. Now, go back just a few verses into chapter 3. 
we know what the word is because it's in context of what he's been talking about. In chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All the breathed out scripture from Genesis to Revelation preach that word. Now, you're to do that, pastor, in season and out of season. That can mean a couple different things. When you're seeing a lot of fruit and people responding, or when there's some dry times and you're not seeing a lot of people responding, or when your message is popular and when your message is not popular. There are a lot of pastors I know that are afraid to say, thus saith the Lord, because what are they afraid of? I might offend somebody. I might step on toes. I might lose a tither. I might lose half my church. Now, I've been here for over 15 years, and if you're going to leave by now, you probably would have, okay? Because I, I said from the very beginning, if I have 10 here or I have 1,000 here, I'm going to preach the same message. And so my comfort when I preach is that the sheep hear his voice. If you're truly God's sheep, you're going to want to hear his voice. It may offend, it may, it may, t- it may step on your toes, but you're going to want to hear it. But notice what Paul says about what, Some people are going to do. Why are you to preach the word, Timothy? Why is it important to preach the word of God? Look at verse 3. For, because, here's why, Timothy, a time is coming, and we don't know exactly when this time is, but I'm, I'm sure it's now, even when Paul was writing, when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll not endure. The word not endure there, if you look at the original language, it means they're going to get bored with it. They're going to be apathetic about God's word. It's maybe even going to be an annoyance where you get bothered hearing the full counsel of God's word preached faithfully week after week. You're not going to endure it. So if you don't want to hear God's word, what are you going to do? What does Paul say they're going to do? They're going to find teachers to tickle their itching ears. Notice what he says there. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. To suit their own passions. Now that word passions there really means sinful passions. Ungodly desires. And the word accumulate... The ESV has accumulate, which is a very interesting word. The, the original, I was studying the original language earlier today, and it really means to stockpile up false teachers. In other words, you're going to seek out anybody, anywhere that's going to tell you what you want to hear. Now, with the Internet, where can you go? YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever it is you want to go, you can find somebody that's going to suit your own passion. To, to tickle your ears because you've gotten bored with or you've gotten annoyed with or you can't endure the preaching of the Word. Not just little bits and pieces of the Word, but the whole counsel of God's Word. And so what's the ultimate thing that's going to happen? Notice what he says there in verse 4. If that happens, you'll turn away from listening to the truth and you'll wander off into myths. 
you don't want to hear the truth anymore, and you'll wander. What does wander mean? <laughs> kind of, you'll, you'll aimlessly wander directionless off into myths, false teachings, things that aren't true. That's my greatest fear for the younger generation. That they will not endure sound teaching, but they'll wander off into myths because the culture is discipling them as opposed to parents, grandparents, the church, the family of God discipling them. Okay? So, over the next few weeks, and however long this takes us, I I haven't mapped out how many weeks it is, I just kind of know where we're going. So, We'll get there when we get there. There, I believe there are six key truths that are under attack today. We're just going to look at truth number one tonight, but I'm going to list them all out for you. Okay? So I'm going to give you the biblical truth, and I'm going to tell you what the attack is from our culture. Okay? So here's truth number one that the Bible teaches. God is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything. And you'd say, that's pretty basic, right? It's a pretty basic truth, right? God is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything. But what's the attack on that today? Here's the attack. The autonomous self is the ruler of all things, and self-expression is the highest value. I'm the one that's the ruler of my life, and I get to express myself no matter what that means because I can be me. That's what we're going to look at tonight. That's truth number one. Okay, truth number two. The Bible is God's inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word. Now, there's two attacks under this, okay? Attack one is the progressive view, the progressive Christian view, okay? This is a little easier to see because they'll say the Bible's not inerrant, we can't be certain about what it says, it brings up more questions than answers, That's really the kind of issue with progressive Christianity, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So that's kind of attack number one on God's Word, is it's it's not really God's Word, it's not inspired, it's it's kind of good for what it is, but it's not the authoritative Word of God. But attack number two, I think, is where, a little bit closer to where we are. I call it the pragmatic view. We will give lip service that God's Word is inerrant, but it's not sufficient to answer the questions or issues of today. Because it's not sufficient, we need other cultural and political lenses to help us understand what's going on. So that's why we need to get into critical race theory and intersectionality and all these other analytical tools to help us understand culture because, yeah, we believe the Bible, but it's not enough. We need these other tools. That's more the evangelical attack on it that we're seeing right now. Truth number three, Jesus is the only way of salvation. What's the attack on that that we see today? Jesus is a good and helpful model on how to live. He's a good teacher. He had some good things to say. He lived a very good life. He was a very moral guru. But we cannot be so narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation and salvation comes exclusively through Him. That's too narrow-minded. What about Hinduism? What about Buddhism? What about people that are sincere in their faith? You can't just say Jesus is the only way. That's too narrow-minded. That's the attack. 
Okay? Truth number four. A holy God must punish sin and rebellion through the substitutionary atonement of His Son. That's a packed phrase there. A holy God must punish sin through a substitutionary atonement. Progressive Christians hate the idea of the wrath of God and Jesus dying on the cross for sin. Here's the attack. The chief attribute of God is love. Love, love, love. That's all God is. We must never discuss wrath, justice, a bloody cross. Don't ever talk about the reality of hell because these things are offensive to modern sensibilities. Don't you dare talk about a bloody cross. Don't you talk about hell. Don't you talk about God's wrath. Don't talk about justice. Don't talk about sin. Those things will offend people. Just talk about how God is love and Jesus is a good moral example for you to follow. Okay. Truth number five. God's written word remains the eternal and righteous standard which defines the issues of marriage, gender, and human sexuality. God's word's the standard for that. God defines what a man is, what a woman is, what marriage is, what sin is. But what's the attack? We've evolved over time. That's the word they'll use. We've evolved over time. The Bible is outdated on these issues. That was, that was their understanding back in that day, the best they had of what their culture was. But we've, we've got more information today about how people really are. And so we need to be open, we need to be affirming, we need to be accepting on how people express their gender, marriage, and sexuality. Because we don't want to tell people that God has an eternal standard that they have to abide by. Okay. And truth number six. The Bible must be our righteous standard for how to seek justice and address the issues of injustice. Now, I'm not going to give you the attack on that because it's really complicated and I don't want to open up a can of worms tonight, but um, you've heard the term social justice. Why is social justice not the same thing as biblical justice? There's a difference. What does the Bible say about justice versus what does the culture say about justice? Um, and a lot of that deals with Marxism, cultural Marxism, and a lot of Marxist theology. All right, so those are the six big attacks, I think, or t- six big truths of, of Christianity that are being t- attacked today. We're going we're to attack number one, but I want to kind of define this term. What is progressive Christianity? Progressive. Al Mohler, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I got my, my doctorate, um, and he has the daily briefing. A lot of you, a lot of you follow Dr. Moeller. Um, he was doing an interview with Decision Magazine, and he said this in an interview, quote, Young Christians do not want to appear to be hateful. They do not want to appear to be uncool. And by the way, we do not want young Christians to be hateful or unwelcoming, but we can't define those things on the world's terms. You understand what he's saying? I want to be perceived as cool. I want to be hip. I want to be welcoming. I don't want to be perceived as a bigot or, or, or mean. And so because I don't want to be perceived that way, that's why a lot of them buy into this progressive Christian movement. Okay? Now there's a Quaker pastor named Philip Gully. He's written in a very influential book called If the Church Were Christian, <laughs> Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. 
this book has kind of become the standard bearer for progressive Christianity, this particular book. And he kind of gives the Ten Commandments of progressive Christianity in this book. But the more popular person right now is a man named Richard Rohr. You guys ever heard of Richard Rohr? Okay. Do you guys watch Oprah? I'm just joking. He's big on Oprah. Okay. Okay. He's probably right now the most influential progressive Christian today. Um, he wrote a devotional called Returning to Essentials, and he, he lays out the Ten Commandments for progressive Christianity. Now, he's a Franciscan monk. He lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's the leader of the organization called Center for Action and Contemplation. He's LGBTQ affirming. He thinks we've gotten the message of the Bible all wrong. He's a favorite of Oprah, and he's probably the grandfather figure right now of progressive Christianity. So I'm not going to give you all the Ten Commandments, but let me just give you three of the things that he's saying. And this is what this kind of gives you a taste, a flavor of what progressive Christians are thinking. Okay, so here's here's one. Okay. One of the commandments. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. In other words, this is, this is my wording here. In other words, we should not tell people they're sinners separated from God, but try to help them fulfill their potential. It's all about potential. It's all about helping people become who they are, self-expression. Don't tell them they're sinners. Don't tell them they're separated by God. Don't mention repentance. Just help them fulfill their self-esteem and be the person that God's called them to be. Because after all, what's the highest value? Self-expression. I get to be who I want to be. Okay? Another of their Ten Commandments is gracious behavior is more important than right belief. This is me speaking. In other words... Sound doctrine does not matter. What matters is being nice to others regardless of what you believe. I'm a really nice heretic. (laughs) He is a really compassionate pastor, but he denies the Trinity. Okay, so it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're kind and you're nice. So we really can't talk about doctrine or beliefs. Okay, and this is the big one for them. Inviting questions is more valuable than supplying the answers. And this is me speaking. In other words, we cannot be certain about absolute truth. And questioning God in the Bible is the joy in this journey towards self-discovery. This is probably the hallmark of, of progressive Christianity. Don't ever claim to have an answer or that the Bible has an answer. Because you really can't be certain. So always bring up questions. It's, it's very good to just question everything. Let's just question, question, question. There's joy in the questioning. And if you dare have an answer, that means you're absolutely certain. And how can you be certain? Because there's no such thing as absolute truth. And if if you're certain and somebody else comes up to a different answer, how can you both be right? And how can one of you be right and one of you be wrong? So we really can't be certain. Let's just question. Now, is there anything wrong with asking questions? Here's one of the reasons why a lot of young people leave church. Nobody takes the time to answer their hard questions. We have a Tuesday night, young 20s, 20-something Bible study that meets every other Tuesday night. And I do a Bible study with them, and usually at the end I'm like, does anybody have any questions? Silent for a minute. Everybody looks around like, do I want to say it? And then we may spend another 45 minutes asking some very deep, hard questions 
And I'm like, no questions off limits, ask it. Because I want to create an environment in our church where no questions off limits. Because if, if, if you're just told, just believe it because Pastor Sean said it, that does shut down people's ability to try to find it out for themselves. And they feel like, well, I can't ever ask questions, or I can never doubt. Or I, I mean, in this church, you can never ask questions. You just have to accept what the pastor says. Don't ever just accept what I say. Now, ask the question, and I will give you a biblical answer, okay? I'm not just going to say, that's a great question. Let's just question that. I've got that question, too. Go home and ask your parents that question. If they have an answer, question their answer. Let's just question everything. We don't need to be certain about anything. Just the joy is in the question. Yeah, but I really want my question answered. No, you really can't know what the answer is. Just keep asking the question. There's joy in the question. Eventually, you're going to get frustrated because you never get an answer to your question. Yes, you can stop me. Question. Yeah, you can ask a question, Nancy. Bethel. Ah. Um, I would not consider Bethel progressive. I would consider them whacked out. Um, um, they're word faith on steroids um, type church. They're more of a word faith, astral projection, a grave sucking, um, the Holy Spirit's blue and the angels are up in heaven farting and laughing at each other type thing. I saw a clip on that the other day. and <laughs> It's weird stuff. Okay, I wouldn't consider them progressive. I would consider them like the word faith, prophetic, um, like extreme hyper charismatic movement more so than progressive because they're not going to, they're not going to, um, believe a lot of the progressive stuff. They'll still believe Jesus is the only way and things like that. Sorry if there's people that are Bethel fans. I just tipped my hand on that one. All right, so <laughs> truth number one we're going to deal with tonight for the next 45 minutes. And this is where it has to start because this is where the Bible starts. And we're going to start where the Bible starts, okay? Because God is the sovereign creator and ruler of of everything. If you don't start there, I don't know where else you can start. Now, what's the attack on that? The autonomous self. Now, do you guys know what autonomous means? Me, myself, I, I'm independent. The autonomous self is the ruler of all things. Okay, so I, I determine what's right, I determine what's, how I'm going to live, and then the highest value the greatest idol, the best, the thing I want to pursue is self-expression. How many Disney movies have you seen recently? Listen to the lyrics of the songs of Disney movies, especially towards girls. It goes all the way back to Ariel and The Little Mermaid. I'm not down in Disney movies, okay, so don't, don't say I'm doing that. But there's just this idea that being who I am is the most important thing, regardless if it, if it goes against God's word or whatever. So, let's turn in your Bible to the index. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Actually, Genesis 1.1. We're going to go to the very beginning. Because if you're going to attack Christianity and God, this is where God starts. Okay, this is where the Bible starts. And you know this very familiarly, so I'm just going to teach a little bit from Genesis 1, but I'm really going to try to contrast what we see in Genesis 1 with what our culture believes. Yes, Connie, go ahead. 
It's important for me to be. Yeah, I'm important. I need to be myself. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, let me, let me rephrase your question for people that are listening online. Somebody comes to you and says, I just want to be myself. And you're saying, that's not necessarily bad because God has created you to be who you are. But if it's in conflict with God's word and culture is telling you to be something that's against God's word, how do you navigate that? Okay, so, yes, every single person is created in the image of God. And God has a plan for their life to direct them to be who he wants them to be. So if you define selfhood through the identity of who you are in Christ, talking about a Christian here, okay? If you find your identity in Christ and how Christ has made you to be, then you pursue that based upon the scriptures. But if you just blanket say, I want to be myself, and you determine what that self is, and it's in direct violation to the Bible, and it's because of what culture's telling you, then I would steer that person to say, well, the self that you're trying to be is in direct opposition to how God made you to be. Does that make sense, Connie? Okay. All right, so Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The very first thing we see in the opening verses of the Bible is the presence of God, the God who is there. God's assumed. He's already there. He's always existed. The first word in the Bible is, in the beginning, God. And the word God there is not, is not Yahweh. That comes a little bit later, which would be translated Lord. It's Elohim. It's the basic word for God in the Old Testament. But Elohim really describes God transcendent power. The authority and power and majesty and ruler of God. The transcendent, holy God. So, God elected to start his story in time... And from the very beginning. But one thing we need to always remember is that he is the hero of the story. The Bible doesn't start with a man, a character, a city, an animal, but God. Now, what does our culture say? Where does our culture start? I'm the hero of my life story. I create my own destiny. I can live however I want. I'm not accountable to my creator. In the beginning, the transcendent, holy, powerful God created the heavens and the earth. He is ruler and sovereign over all. Our culture says, I could care less. I want to be the ruler and creator of my own life. And I'm the hero of my story. I always am fascinated when kids come up after the service. And I had this question asked a lot. Especially by this one particular girl as she was growing up in our church. And I probably asked her this, answered this question maybe five or six times. She'd come up after the service. Who created God? 
nobody. Well, who, how can that happen? God's always existed. You can see the wheels turning. God, God's always been. He has always existed. He never was created. Well, who created him? Nobody. He's always existed. It's hard for a little girl to get her mind wrapped around something not having a beginning. Okay. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the world, on all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Revelation 11.33-36, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. In Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Question, why did God create the universe? Because he was lonely up in heaven and he needed some people to keep him company. <laughs> why did God create? For his glory alone. He didn't need the world to add anything to who he is. It's for his glory alone. Okay, so the first thing we see is the presence of God. God is already there on the scene from everlasting to everlasting. He sets the rules. He's the creator. But the, the second thing we see here in the opening chapter of the Bible is the pattern of God. Not just the presence of God, but the pattern of God in how he creates. Now, notice what it says there in verse 2. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God transforms darkness into light. God creates order out of chaos. Do you, do you notice what it says there? What does it mean that it was formless and void, and darkness was over the waters? Now, obviously none of us were there to understand how this all worked. But somehow, God, when He created transforms the darkness and chaos into an orderly universe for his glory. And it's kind of a pattern of how we're saved, right? What's our life before we were saved? Chaotic, disordered, dark. And what did God do? God brought order and light. He even says that. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So God's pattern of creation is to bring order, to bring design, to do things his way. Not only is he the creator, but he created it his way. What's the attack upon this? What's the attack upon God's design, God's order? Our culture does not want to submit to God's created order. They prefer their own design. They don't want to be accountable to their creator. They don't want to submit to how God has ordered the world according to his sovereign plan. 
It's very interesting. The Hebrew word for an abomination or something that's um, in relation to especially homosexual behavior is called a disordered desire. It's not according to God's order and how he created. And so today, people want to go against God's design. So we see God's presence. We see God's pattern. But let's look at the third thing we see here. We see the power of God. And that's most clearly expressed through his word. Now, I'm not going to go through this, but, but let's just kind of start in verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning, the first day. Eleven times in this passage of Scripture, God said, God said, God said. Now, how could, why couldn't have God just created by snapping his finger? Or thinking the world into existence. Why did God say it? Because from the very beginning, God is a speaking God. He spoke the universe into existence, which means there's power in his word. Every time God met with his people, he came to them and spoke to them. He spoke to Adam. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. God's word is one of the most powerful motifs throughout Scripture. God chose to speak and to reveal himself to man through words. Now, we have the written word now. So why do you think the word is so central to what we do around here? Why is preaching so important? Why is the teaching and study of God's word so important? Because we believe that the scriptures, God himself has spoken to us in authority, without error, and we want to bow in submission under that word. Because from the very beginning, God spoke. He powerfully spoke his word, and the world came into existence, the universe. Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The word of God. Now, it's interesting, the word create. In the beginning, God created. Bara. It, it really means a completed act of creation. It tells us two things about this interesting Hebrew word, bara. Number one, this word is only used exclusively of God. It's never used of a human being creating a piece of pottery or creating artwork. This word bara in the original Hebrew is only reserved for God. It's God's special act of creation. God's the one that's doing this. And secondly, the way that it's worded in its verbal form refers to the completed act of creation. In other words, it didn't say God began the process of creation and through some Darwinian explanation of things that kind of came about created has the idea that it was actually completed when God did it now <laughs> there's a bunch of debates about how how that all happened okay you've got young earth creationists you got old earth creationists you got literal 24 
our seven literal days. You got, you know, the theistic evolution. I'm not going to get into that whole argument. But what I'm going to say is this Psalm 33, 69. By the word of the Lord, the heavens and the earth were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. He spoke it. Colossians 1, 16-17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. God's presence, God's pattern, God's power. But there's a fourth thing, and it doesn't start with P. I couldn't alliterate it. It's light. Light. Why is light created first? Do you know that light's created before the sun? Did you ever notice that when you read the creation account? How can there be light when there's no sun yet? There's no sun to give off light. Now, I don't have an answer to that. The only answer I have is this. God himself is the source of light. But I want you to think about the similarities between Genesis 1 and John 1. In the be- How does Genesis 1 say? In the beginning, God. First thing he said, let there be light. John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word. Speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so let's think about the images we've seen so far that are established in the first few verses of Genesis. God is sovereign and does all things for His glory. How does our world respond? I am sovereign and I do all things for my own glory. Now how our world responds? Okay, what else have we seen? God creates order out of chaos because he has a design. How does our world respond? I don't like God's design, so I'll live however I want and set my own rules. What else have we seen? God creates through the power of his authoritative word. How does the world respond? I prefer my own value system, and I will not submit to God's word. God creates light first as a symbol pointing to Jesus as being the light of the world. How does the world respond? I love darkness rather than the light. What does Jesus say in John 3, 19-20? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So truth number one. God is the sovereign creator and ruler of all things for his own glory. What does our world say? I'm the ruler of all things. Self-expression is the greatest thing. I'll set the rules. I'm not accountable to my creator. Okay. Now, the next place I want to take us 
is to Exodus chapter 20, to the Ten Commandments. And I want us to take us to the first commandment. Genesis 1 establishes God as the creator and ruler of all things. But the first commandment tells us that God is to be worshipped above all things. What if I told you this? God is first and foremost preoccupied with himself. What do people live for with social media? How many likes did I get on Facebook? How many views? How many reposts? I got selfies taken. Got my Instagram. Everything's about me, 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 me. Now, if you're the creator of all things and you're a sovereign God, do you have the right to have it be all about you? <laughs> okay. You guys know how the Westminster Shorter Confession, or the, 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 not the confession, but the catechism, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, Exodus 20, verse 1. You guys there? God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Some translations say besides me. So let's ask some questions about the, the, the first commandment. If God alone is God, why does he mention other gods as if they exist at all? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, does that mean there's other gods? Does that mean God's kind of like, okay, like, there's a big debate right now. Who's the goat in basketball? In my personal opinion, it's Michael Jordan. Some people would say it's LeBron James. No, it's not LeBron James. But there's a big debate about who's the goat, the greatest of all time. And we kind of, yeah, someone like, what's the goat? The greatest of all time. Is it Tom Brady? Is it, you know, there's the goat in the sports, the greatest of all time. And you kind of rank, people rank, like, who's the top? And like, this is the greatest of all time, and there's like a, there's like a totem pole of, of greatness. Is God saying, I'm the goat, but there's other gods under me. They're, they're a little bit better, but I, I'm, I'm the Hall of Fame God that's made it to the top. And these other guns, gods are kind of good, but they're not quite there. Is that what God's saying? No. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist in one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist and through whom we exist. So these other gods are so-called gods. They're false gods. They're idols. Psalm 115, 1 through 8. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, why should the nation say, where's their God? Our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, 
so do all who trust in them. I could preach a whole sermon on that, and I did a few years ago. You become like what you worship. Those who make them become like them. Whatever becomes your idol, whatever your idol is, you become like that. Okay, so what, God, what, what it's saying here is all other false gods are powerless. They're false gods. They're not true gods. They're not worthy of worship. They're lifeless. Okay, question number two. What does it mean to have no other gods before God or besides God? Literally, the Hebrew reads, before my face. You shall have no other gods before my face. It's not like God saying, you can have other lower gods, but just make sure you always keep me on top of the totem pole. We think of it this way. You shall have no other gods above me, in addition to me, or equal to me. All right, I want to take you on a little journey to the book of Isaiah. So, so let's go to Isaiah real quick, because the last, there, there's a section of Isaiah where God brings the false gods on trial, the idols, he brings the idols on trial, and basically says, okay, can you guys create? Do you guys know the future? Can you guys, you know, bring prophecy about? No, you're basically good for being burnt in the wood and keeping you warm on the campfire. And So let's turn to Isaiah 42. I'm just going to look at a few scriptures here. But I thought it would be fine to take you, let you see them with your own, your own eyes as opposed to having them on the screen. Okay, Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's not going to share his glory with any other thing. Okay, let's go to Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. And I want you to see the repeated phrase here. You may want to even underline it. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Besides me there is no Savior. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other Savior. Okay? Let's go to Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Hey, false gods, can you predict the future? There is no God besides me. Okay? Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there's no other. It sounds like, and you guys will get this because you're older crowd, like God's giving a broken record. He's repeating the same thing over and over. What's he keep saying? There is no God besides me. 
there is no God besides me. Okay? Um, go down to verse 21 and 22. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. <laughs> how, how more clear can God get? And then one more. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. This, this is my favorite. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Is God pretty clear about him being the only God? <laughs> Very clear. So what's the problem with breaking the first commandment of having another God besides God? What, you, what are you doing in that sense? You're putting an idol either in the place of God, equal to God, above God, when there's no other God besides God alone. So idolatry. What's the major idol of our culture? Does our culture submit to the sovereign God as their creator and ruler and their only God? Okay, what's the attack? What's the idol? Our culture has made an idol, I said it before, of self-expression. And what do I mean by that? I have the right to live however I want, to be whatever I want, to do whatever I want, because after all, I am my own God. Now, they probably wouldn't say that out loud. But when you live however you want, be whatever you want, do whatever you want, regardless of anything, you're basically saying, I'm the creator, I'm the ruler, I'm the sovereign, and I make the rules. I'm not accountable to anybody. What happens when you tell them there's one true God that they're accountable to and he's set the rules? <laughs> that you can't just be who you want to be and do what you want to do. You just be you and I'll be me and everything will work out cool. Don't you hear that a lot? You do you. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Obviously, Jesus is talking about money there, but it's anything that you have two masters. You can't have God and something else, and it's in the place of God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the word of God, your mind being transformed as opposed to being um, conformed to the image of the world. Two verses that I think are very important for you to memorize, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever, whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, whatever you do, do what? Do it all to the glory of God. One of my life verses, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says it kind of in a little different way. Whatever you do in word or, do or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Kind of the same concept there. What does Jesus say is the, is the first commandment? He just reiterates what we've seen in Matthew 12, I mean, sorry, Mark 12, 28 through 30. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, turn over two books to Ezekiel 14. You may not have been in Ezekiel for a while. But there's a very interesting passage about idolatry. And this is really about the idolatry of the elders of Israel. But the wording that God uses here to talk about idolatry is very, very interesting. When we're talking about having another God besides God. Ezekiel 14, 1 through 6. Is everybody there? Ezekiel 1 through 6. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the heart of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. What's the problem they've put idols deep into their hearts now sometimes we don't know idols are deep in our hearts because they're so deep in our hearts you may not even know there's an idol deep in your heart that's why you need to pray psalm 139 23 through 24 pray this regularly search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting we sometimes don't know what's deep in our hearts and we need to ask god to search our hearts to help us find out what's there is there an idol you've put deep in your heart and then has there an idol you've put in front of your eyes are you watching are you clicking are you viewing before your eyes a stumbling block of iniquity what happens when you take an idol into your heart and put other so-called gods before the one true God? What happens? Look at the end of verse 5. That I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me. This is God speaking. You're estranged from God because of your idols. Estranged. This word means alienated from God. 
you've turned away from God. It's almost like God's become a stranger to you and you're a stranger to Him. So when you take idols into your hearts and puts idols before your eyes, you may say you believe in God, but He's like a stranger to you and you're a stranger to Him. And so what's the answer? What does is, what is, what is, what is Ezekiel what does God through Ezekiel say there in verse 6? Repent. Turn away from your idols. Turn away from all your abominations. So repent from that idolatry. In the opening pages of his famous book, The Confessions, St. Augustine writes this, You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you've made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Here's Augustine's theology. God made us to worship Him. He made our hearts to find satisfaction in Him. And if you're finding satisfaction in anything besides Jesus, you're going to be a restless soul. You're going to be an anxious soul. When you look in every place besides him to find pleasure, you'll always have a restless heart. You'll always be discontented. You'll always be insecure. You'll always be distracted, and you'll always live in fear if you seek out things that aren't God. Ultimately, self-expression. So here's the, here's, the, here's the deceiving thing about self-expression as an idol. What do you think you're getting out of self-expression? I'm bettering myself. I'm, I'm elevating myself. I'm making much of myself. And actually, what happens when you do that? It leads you to be the most anxious, insecure, stressed out, depressed, discontented person. Because you were meant not to find it in yourself. You were meant to find it in Christ. So when your heart rests fully in Christ alone, your heart will experience the joy of the Lord as your strength. You'll have a lasting security. You'll have a peace that passes understanding. You'll have rest in Christ. Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, I threw a lot of information at you tonight, but let's recap this first truth. The first truth, I think, that is under assault today, and it starts, we started with Genesis 1, with God being creator, and we went to the first commandment in Exodus with the Ten Commandments. Truth number one, God is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything. If we don't get that down, we, we don't have much hope for going much further. What's the attack on that today? The autonomous self is the ruler of all things, and self-expression is the highest value. So, we have some time for questions, comments, and snide remarks. So, would somebody like to ask a question? Yes, Gary. And I'll repeat the question so they can hear it on the live stream. Okay, if you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, what kind of love do you have for your wife? Secondary to God that you have love you have to God. Is that kind of where you're getting? Okay, you should love God first and foremost as the greatest desire. And then you love your wife with a sacrificial, self-giving type of love. 
But ultimately, remember what Jesus said, if you don't hate father, mother, you, you can't follow me. And I, obviously, that's a hyperbolic statement. But God is to be the chief love of our hearts before any human person. doesn't mean we don't love our wives, but it means God, that, that ultimate allegiance, devotion. Because here's the thing, Gary. What happens if you treat your spouse as God? Will they disappoint you? Will they live up to being what you want? If you elevate a person to the status of God, they will always disappoint and you're putting undue pressure on them, which is not fair. God is to have the only place because he's the only one that will never fail. Does that make sense, Gary? Okay. Good question. Other, yes, Brent. This was my sermon last Sunday. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. The love for God enables us to love others. Last week was on loving enemies, but obviously hope your wife is not your enemy, but you're loving your, loving your spouse. <laughs> yes, other questions? I know this was a lot of food for thought today. I was trying to get you guys hooked. <laughs> yes, Connie. Yes, good point, Connie. You said, she said, the observation was, if God created chaos or order out of chaos, when you take God out of your life, it goes from being orderly back to chaos. How many of you have known somebody whose life is chaotic because they have misaligned priorities with God? It's not an ordered life. And what do you want to do? If you just got your relationship with Christ right, everything else will hopefully fall into place. That doesn't mean you never have problems, but I've seen that so many times, um, the chaotic. Yes, you know, this whole, this whole week messed up my sermon plan. I literally went home with my books today because I have a new puppy, and so I'm, I have to stay home a little bit. So I took my, my Luke commentaries home to start studying Luke for this Sunday, cause that's what, and then I'm like, I can't preach on that. So I'm not telling you what I'm preaching on, but God led me in a different direction, so that means I've got to start all over again in the next two days. But I feel like it's timely. But we live in a chaotic, crazy, uncertain, volatile, scary world. Disorder. One thing I didn't tell you guys is after we talk about these six truths and how they're under attack... I'm going to talk about four things we need to expect. One, the coming soft totalitarianism that's coming to America. And I'm just going to hold that at that. Number two, the need to truly defend the truth and teach the younger generation worldview issues. Number three, the importance of being the body of Christ, their safety in numbers. We need to be the body of Christ. We need to learn how to be salt and light together so that we're not out there on an island. And number four, we've got to learn how to suffer well. <laughs> Real exciting stuff, right? <laughs> but I'm trying to give you guys a dose of reality because I do not foresee, unless God does a great act of revival, I do not see there being, from a human perspective, I see 
things getting to be harder and harder for Christians to live out their faith that we've never seen before in our lifetimes. And we need to be prepared for it. Yes. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. And with the, um, with the Senate going the way it did, probably the very first act of Congress will be the Equality Act which will basically take away all religious freedoms for churches and religious organizations and things like that. Um, so we need to be prepared for what that looks like. Okay. 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 Okay, so l- let me ask if you guys feel the same way Nancy does. Okay, I'm going to say, Nancy's like, I come to church, I get, I get charged, I get taught, I come to the four walls of church, I go home, I pray, but there's something within me that says I've got to do more, I get charged up, I need to, f- what's the word you use, fight? She- fight, for fight for truth, fight for church, fight for your country. Yeah, fight, yeah. And don't know what to do. How do you channel that fight? <laughs> That's a good question. How do you, because here's what I think a lot of Christians do. I think we have angst and we feel like we want to do something. And we're like, I'm just a little person here in Sterling, Colorado. What can I do? And she wanted to go to the Trump rally protest. Glad you didn't. Yeah, I didn't want to, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, Kevin. You need to do, to do something. Yeah, and this is the hard thing because Spurgeon said this. Prayer is the work. <laughs> we want to do something. I want to go out there and do something. Well, have you ever thought about getting on your knees and fighting the good fight through? I'm not saying, we, I'm not saying that's all we do. Here's the balance. Sometimes Christians, we want to go storm the gates of hell and we don't want to pray. Other times we want to pray and we don't want to go storm the gates of hell. How do we balance those two in wise ways that are being salt and light? That gives me food for thought to help us move forward because I think if we have a desire to want to change our culture, but how do you do it? Especially when you feel like, can I really make a difference? Or I want to make a difference and I don't know how. Does everybody kind of feel that way a little bit, or is that just me? Okay, yeah. You're like at the edge of your seat, like, oh, yes. Okay. It's hard to sit and watch it happen in real time. Yeah, Cindy, go ahead. Yeah. Well, got, all right, so it's 801, and some of you have to go pick up your children. from. So let me pray, and if you have more questions, you can hang around afterwards, and we can talk. So let's pray. Father, we do come before you tonight, and we do pray for our nation again as we started out. Um, there is seems to be just division. There seems to be a lot of anxiety. There needs to be uh, just some wisdom in how we move forward. And, Lord, um, people are looking for leadership. And, Lord, help us as Christians to be leaders Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to be godly. Help us to be bold. Lord, it's a hard, it's a hard time to live right now, to navigate these difficult waters. And so we're going to need your power. We're going to need your grace. We're going to need your wisdom. Lord, we don't want to come across as a, 
like purposely offensive, but Lord, we also want to be truthful. So help us to speak the truth in love. Lord, uh, burn these truths on our mind and help us go out of this place knowing that you are the one true God. You're the ruler and creator of all things. You're sovereign. We are not. Uh, We want to submit to you as the Lord of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you.